Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 25 of Cardboard Time. This is Arwen, and this episode's going to be a little bit out of the ordinary. There will be absolutely no reviews today. I'm recording this just as I get back from Origins, and it has been a long weekend. You can probably tell from my voice, I'm still recovering a little bit. Plenty of talking to some really fantastic people, and I can't wait to tell you all about it, but unfortunately I had like one day to get this up so poor planning on my part probably should have done a little bit more prep work we do plan on having a special later this week to talk about it with Jamie who went with me but today we do have a fantastic interview with Jim Freeman and James Staley talking about hamsters versus hippos and a lot of really cool stuff so Let's get right into this episode and let's get into the content that you want to hear. Today's beer of the day is the Furnace Hazy Pale Ale by Barley's Brewing Company in Columbus, Ohio. And this was very appropriate for Origins. Arcane Wonders actually partnered with them to have a beer with the name, which is a lot of fun. And it sounds like the owner of Barley's is a bit of a board game nerd himself. As far as the beer goes, it was more complex than I was expecting. Definitely some grapefruit with a nice malty finish. There were some other notes in there which I couldn't really readily identify, uh, but it was really solid. I gave it a 4, and it was kind of on the border of a 4 to 5 out of 5. Just didn't quite hit there, but wow, was that good. I could have easily, easily gone for another one if I didn't have a whole bunch of stuff to do later that day. And we will check the Shelf of Shame. That's a little preview for what's coming up on the special so that you'll get to know what I purchased and what I got played. And my Shelf of Shame was down to 150 at one point, and then the Vendor Hall of Origins opened up. And, um, you know, that, that racked that. The Shelf of Shame is at 157. It is up to from the last podcast. So really not as bad as I was kind of worried that it was going to be, but it definitely didn't go down. There weren't a whole lot of opportunities to play a lot of games for me. We were doing a lot of networking, but we did get some played, so we'll talk about that in a minute. 11 new additions to the Shelf of Shame since we last talked. It's been a little bit. The Gallerist was the first one. Gods a lot of games, my favorite game store in the area had a little sale, and I decided that that was a great time to get a Lacerda game into my collection, and I am incredibly glad that I did. Next is basically my Origins haul, Uh, 10 games from that, the first one being Furnace, a really, really hot game, lots of people picking that one up, and that was pretty much front and center. Great display by Arcane Wonders. Really excited about that one. I love engine building, and this sounds like a very nice engine builder. 
I received a review copy of Lawyer Up from Rock Manor Games. Excited to get that one to the table. Sounds very interesting. The Belgian Beers Race is a game that I thought about kickstarting and didn't quite get around to it. And I did finally pick up a copy at the convention. I figure anybody that listens to this podcast for an extended period of time knows my love for beer, knows my love for Belgian beers, and this seemed like a no-brainer. I kind of had to have it. I received a review copy of Gladius from Deepwater Games, a wonderful booth. Uh, Really good folks over there as well. So looking forward to getting that out. Jamie reviewed the rules, and she said that it shouldn't be too hard to get to the table. So expect a review shortly. Too Many Bones is finally in my collection, and this one from Chip Theory Games, I sat down, did a demo with their fantastic staff, and there was no way that I could leave Origins without a copy of it. So I've been eyeing it for the past three years or so. I've really been interested in it, never sat down for a demo, but the quality was obviously there. Just a little bit of a pretty high price point, but for the components that you get, definitely a investment. Really eager to get this one out to the table and and start playing that. On the Rocks was next, and this one has been lighting social media up. Looks like a cross between Azul and Potion Explosion, two games that I absolutely adore. And this adds a cocktail theme. Floor Plan was also another acquisition. I played this on Thursday night of Origins and decided that I had to pick it up. Nice little roll and write game. Kohaku was a game that I missed out on the deluxe edition of with the acrylic tiles, but... Kind of had some regrets about not getting it. Looks like it's going to be an absolutely beautiful game and heard a lot of really good things about the gameplay as well. So excited to have that in the collection. I got a copy of Borderlands Tiny Tina's Robot Tea Party. So try saying that three times fast. A review copy from XYZ Games. So look forward to that content coming. And finally, Knights of the Hound Table, a small little company produced this out of Syracuse, and we played a sample round. Really liked the people that were there, so we picked this one up. A very light, straightforward card game. So those were my new additions. Let's talk about what I played, and there's actually quite a difference between my additions and my played count this week. So the first game up was Ramen Fury. I joined some friends once again at Milestone, and we got this one out, which was a lot of fun. A very simple card game, a lot of take that, but we really enjoyed that. Crossmaster Arena, I got out on Board Game Arena with Justin, and we'll save the discussion for him. The Gallerist, so I talked about that being new to my collection, and we will absolutely be circling back to this one at some point once I have an opportunity to play with others. I played it solo, but really for my first Lacerda, I was not disappointed. 
and it's leaving the door open to many more in my future. I was absolutely smitten and intrigued by this game. So you don't have to wait for my opinion. It's not leaving the shelf anytime soon. But as far as nuanced review goes, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. On Wednesday night of Origins, I decided to go down super early and get a hotel. There were some events that were going on, very small, unofficial events, but I thought I might as well take the day, enjoy some of Columbus, and get a couple things to the table. I got Pendulum and XCOM, the board game, out, and they were both solo games, and I enjoyed both more than I was expecting. Pendulum has been kind of one of those games that had mixed reviews on Board Game Geek. I actually enjoyed the gameplay quite a bit. I played the solo mode, which you have to play timed. And I think a lot of people that had a lot of big gripes with it were playing the untimed mode. I think this game absolutely needs to be played timed. That's the whole point of the game. It was a very interesting mechanic to add in there. And then XCOM, the board game, was a a very interesting experience as well. Very well-developed app, especially considering the time that it was developed in. Uh, Next, I played The Expanse with Jamie. And I also played Arcana and Seven Summits. And then finally, like I said before, I played Floor Plan as well at the convention. So those were my played games. And we will talk about some of them on a future podcast, but today's not that day. And then finally, the expansions that I got, these don't count because they're expansions, so they're not on the shelf of shame. Onitama Light and Shadow, like I said, I had to have this one, and I picked this one up. I'm an Onitama fiend. I absolutely love it. This needed to come home. Manufactions for Fantastic Factories. Everybody knows my love for Fantastic Factories, 100% needed this expansion. Looking through it and seeing the different factions and the different uh, asymmetric starting resources, really intrigued to play Fantastic Factories with this. And I also picked up the playmat because I was at the Deepwater booth. I saw it and I said, you know, this could get out solo enough. I think the playmat would be a good investment. And then when I picked up Too Many Bones, I picked up a couple of extra characters. Tink was one because they basically build robots, and that sounds really cool, attacking your enemies with a bunch of robots and not actually getting into combat yourself. And then, of course, I had to pick up Nugget because that is my chinchilla's name. That was like a no-brainer pickup. And then finally... At the Origins Flea Market that was coordinated through Board Game Geek, I picked up Cursed Mountain for In the Hall of the Mountain King, which adds cooperative play and solo play, and I loved In the Hall of the Mountain King. Unfortunately, haven't had the chance to do the official review with Phil yet, but we both really enjoyed the game, and to be able to make it cooperative and maybe get it out with some different friends, or just play it solo myself, I think is a great, great idea. And I picked this one up for about five bucks, which I thought was a a really good deal. Sold some games while I was down there as well. So got a a couple of things out of the house, but uh, definitely (laughs) 
definitely added a lot more. So anyways, that was the Shelf of Shame. We will once again be getting a little bit more into the Origins discussion a little bit later in the week when we get the bonus episode out for you. Well, stay tuned because we have a wonderful interview with Jim Freeman and James Staley, so you will not want to miss this. Stay tuned. Okay, so at this time, I'd like to welcome James Freeman and James Staley to the show. They are co-designers of Hamsters vs. Hippos. James Freeman is also a social media specialist, and James Staley is the host of Board Game Binge, and also the owner of Tin Robot Games. Gentlemen, welcome to Cardboard Time. Well, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Not a problem. So the first thing that we want to know is definitely a little bit more about hamsters versus hippos. Sure. Well, hamsters versus hippos. It's funny when people hear that, they're like, what? <laughs> How do hamsters and hippos kind of interact? And that's kind of the, uh, the, the general idea behind that is we've taken this kind of twisted kind of idea that James had and, uh, and put it into a game. So Hamsters vs. Hippos, it's a light two to six player game of tile flipping, lotus flower gathering, and avoiding being eaten by hippos. Um, this, the story behind this is that you're these hamsters that are they're at the zoo, you're in your enclosure, and one day somebody leaves the, the latch of the cage unlocked. So you make a run for it, right? You're, 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 you want to get to hamster land, and of course hamster land is in Canada where I'm from. A uh, little side note there. And uh, as you're, you're, you're racing out of the, uh, the, the zoo, you, you see the pond that you've been looking at outside the window for the past couple of years. And of course, these lotus flowers are all over the pond. And in hamster land, lotus flowers are like gold, right? So you want to go and collect as many of those as you can so you can live like a king or queen uh, when you get to hamster land. Now, unfortunately, this pond is also where the zoo keeps the hippos right? And the hippos just happen to have a favorite snack and that is hamsters. So that's kind of this scenario, this kind of weird scenario that we set up uh, as a theme around the game. But the core of the game itself gets down to it's a, it's a push your luck style of tile flipping, seeing how many flowers you can gather and decide, you know, when is the right time to leave the pond? Are you going to leave, you know, gather more and take a chance of getting eaten? Or do you leave uh, when the getting is good? Well, that's certainly a very, very interesting and different theme. What was your inspiration behind developing the game? That's what I went over to James. Yeah. So when I started out in the game industry, I think everybody has a phase where they try to design a game. So like me and my friend went on the site that had random board game name generators, and we just tried to find the weirdest thing we could find. And that wound up being this game that I made called Grim Reaper Hippopotamus, which at the time I thought was decent, but it really wasn't complete. Like it was, it was still lacking some things and I play tested it with friends and family and they liked it, but it just felt like it was missing something. So I shelved it for a while. And then through working at Doomlings, I met James and me and James started talking about games and I showed him Grim Reaper Hippopotamus and he liked the fundamental core of the game, but wanted to expand it. And we pitched ideas back and forth and that became this game. What really got me is that kind of the whole idea of this Grim Reaper hippopotamus. I, I just found it hilarious, you know, that you've got this image of the, this hippo that's kind of just lurking, uh, ready to get you. But we wanted to find a way to, to kind of soften it a bit. So the Grim Reaper felt a little too uh, ominous, right, uh, in the original version. So um, the one thing that, you know, we 
asked James, said, you know, do you mind if we, you know, we make some edits to this? And, uh, you know, James, of course, is like, do whatever you want, because that's the kind of guy he is. He's just a great guy. So we said, okay. And at first we actually thought, well, what if it was bunnies? Bunnies and hippopotamuses would be kind of funny. You know, the idea of these kind of ears kind of hanging out of the hippo's mouth. And then that kind of slowly evolved into this idea of, okay, what's another small creature that could be a good name for this? And then we had the double alliteration of, you know, hamsters and hippos. So it turned into basically hamsters versus hippos. But the really the the thing that I really liked about the game was this this kind of discovery, but I want to take it one step further and say, okay, can we turn this into kind of like a pusher lock, but not just a pusher lock where you're just seeing how far you can go, but something where you're actually interacting with the boards. You're moving your piece across this pond like it's like you're the actual hamster itself, you know, jumping from lily pad to lily pad. So, you know, as James says, after a successive kind of back and forth, we kind of landed at uh, where we currently, uh, the current iteration. I have to say that I'm a huge fan of Pressure Luck games. A couple of my favorites are Can't Stop and Quacks of Quedlinburg is one of my absolute favorite games of all time. How was this different or similar to uh, the other Pressure Luck games that are currently on the market? I think the main difference is a lot of like when you talk about Can't Stop, it's it's a race, right? Or when you're playing Ink and Gold, everything is based on everybody making a decision on one card. And in this game, you have the ability to try to, say, find the hippos. If you're in the lead and you want to try to wreck someone's game, you have that element that generally isn't available in a pressure luck game. Yeah, it's got a tiny bit of take that in there for sure. Um, there's also the ability to cut people off in the pond, right? Because you can only go on to tiles that have not been flipped. So like you can't go back to where you've already, someone's already been. And so that gives us other a dynamic where as you're going through the pond, if, uh, you know, some of the tiles actually have lotus flowers on top of them as well. So you're trying to, you know, as you're flipping these tiles, you're discovering different actions. And under some of these tiles, there's actually lotus flowers you can collect. But in the initial setup, there is nine lotus flowers in the center of the board on top of tiles you automatically get just by stepping on that tile. So you actually have the ability where you can cut somebody off um, by flipping tiles and kind of cutting their path off so that you've got greater access to those as well. So I think, yeah, that, that's a good point. I think that's something that's a little bit different than you're seeing in some of these other push lock games. Yeah, that definitely sounds different. And is there a suggested age range for this game? Is it pretty much open to everybody or is it for heavier gamers or lighter gamers? Yeah, let me take that one. So with this game uh, on the box, you'll see this as 14 plus, And there's a very specific reason for that. And that is that it contains small parts. And I, I used to work in the food industry and uh, specifically in, in hot dogs. <laughs> so the company I worked with, we actually sold hot dogs. And uh, one thing they would always would say to people is, hey, when you cook a hot dog, you're feeding it to kids, make sure you cut lengthwise down so that, you know, it doesn't block the airway and it's not choke size. Because there's small round tokens in this game, uh, it's important that people are, you know, there's adult supervision if you are playing with kids, but we've seen people play this with kids as young as six, all the way up to to full grown adults. I know in, in my gaming group, there's some people that are lighter gamers, like they're not super heavy. They just kind of see it more as a socialization, like let's sit around chatting, drinking coffee. Oh, and by the way, we've got a game that we're kind of playing, interacting with. So those kind of people love the game like this because it's lighter it's not super heavy in strategy there's a lot of randomness to it but you do have some control as well so it seems to be something that fits a lot of people um you know with my company one thing that we try to do and the reason why i really like this this game that james had was we're constantly looking for games that are in the casual board game segment right so games that could be considered like gateway games for instance so something you're going to bring out at the beginning of game night or maybe you're going to bring it out at the end of game night when you're just kind of wrapping it up and there's a few people kind of still hanging around but 
that's that's what this game is about, right? And um, you know, for people looking for games like that, I think it's a perfect fit. There's definitely an area of the market that a lot of people who are really heavier board gamers that are looking to get friends and family into the hobby. This seems like a kind of gateway into some of those other games. Yeah, and I think that as part of that, the one thing we really wanted to do was focus on the quality of the components, right? So specifically for people who do have a large game collection that maybe are getting it so they can introduce other people into the hobby, whether it be younger kids or even friends and, and, and family members. We wanted them when they open up that it's a showpiece, right? And I know that, I mean, here in Canada, we've had a lot of lockdowns for the past couple of years. So we haven't had the same opportunity to go to like the meetup groups and the, and the game nights that, that I used to go to. But in each of those nights, the one thing I'd always notice is if there was a game that uh, was a bit of a showpiece, right? where there's like some components that look really nice and really premium and really nice artwork, people would often crowd around and say, what is that? You know, oh, what, you know, oh, can I, can I maybe play in, in the next round? So for, for us, that's something that, you know, James and I really wanted to make sure was, was core to this game, that it's not just a quick press your luck game, but it's really a showpiece. So, you know, the tiles are two and a half inch tiles, radius corners, you know, linen finish on both sides of the tiles so that they don't scuff easy. Um, they're thick enough so that you can pick them up and flip them over easy. And you're not trying to kind of pick at, you know, anybody knows you're trying to pick up a card off a, off a table. Sometimes you're munching the edges of those cards, trying to get your nail under it. Well, this, we want something thick enough. You can actually pick it up and flip it over easily. So we want some, um, some kind of like robustness to the game. The, uh, the lotus flower tokens are wooden, right? So they're, they're nice cut out wooden tokens. We didn't want to go with punch outs. The meeples are absolutely adorable. We've got these little hamster meeples. There's six of them and they're screen printed. Uh, we included the resource bowl. Cause I know myself, I get annoyed when I have a game with a lot of components and there's a general supply and it's just in a heap in the middle of the table, right? So we want to have something where, okay, where do we put those tokens? Let's put them off the side so you can keep them nice and contained. Um, the insert in the box uh, keeps everything nice and organized. Now that is something that we're probably going to, uh, when we get to the final iteration, because we only have reviewer copies right now, but when this campaign's done, we're probably going to move to a plastic insert on that one just to give it that much more protection in the box. Uh, and then we got player boards and the player boards, um, they didn't have to be as thick uh, on the table because um, you're not picking them up and, and, and flipping them over and so forth, but we still want them to be high quality. So they're linen finish as well with radius corners. So really, you know, it's all about quality for this one. Quality, 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 especially for our Kickstarter backers. Well, I think we're going to segment a little bit into more of the development of the game right now. And we've talked to other designers in the past about their experiences designing and playtesting during COVID. So how has that affected how you've been working on this game? Have you been doing things more virtually or in person? It's definitely been a challenge. Traditionally, I've used Tabletop Simulator for playtesting, which we've used uh, on this game as well. Uh, we've used, as we said, like meetup groups and so forth, which we've had less access to. So what we've done is we've really relied heavily on a lot of collaboration between the two of us. And quite frankly, I think COVID has, has probably brought this game to market faster than it normally would. It definitely brought James and I together in our discussions. And I think it brought him and I closer together a lot in our collaboration, but certainly he's uh, down in his area testing this game a lot uh, with, again, his extended network. He can actually get to more people even than I can uh, because things are a little bit more open in the States. But here in Canada, certainly the same thing. Uh, all of our playtesting iteration was done with friends and extended uh, family. No, it's really been interesting hearing about people, especially at the beginning of COVID. They were like, oh, we've got to do all this stuff for playtesting and that. And I hate doing it online. And I want to do it in person. And then you talk to the same people later oh, yeah. and it's like, nah, this online stuff 
stuff is actually pretty good. I can do this and this and this and this. And it's like, I thought you hated it. Well, there's certainly two things coming out of that. One is that I think it's opened up people at Tabletop Simulator that maybe we're not using that in the past. And mm -hmm. I know that the iterative process is way, way faster with uh, with tabletop simulator because if you need to change a card you can literally just upload the card and bang you know mm -hmm. you're you're back into play testing with updated artwork or you know maybe components or mechanics whereas in the past you'd have to go back down to the print shop reprint it off you know cut it out and so forth so i think it's definitely sped up that iterative uh, development process and then secondly i think it's giving you access to people around the world that maybe you wouldn't have even consider doing as part of a play test group i know joe slack for instance he hosts a uh, play testing group uh, once a month on sundays virtually through discord and you know it's open to anybody that wants to come in and, and play test their game there's people in that group literally from all corners of the planet uh and it, it's just a really really cool thing to see and i don't know if that would have happened maybe eventually it would have happened but i don't think it would have happened as fast as it did uh, because of covid i think it was interesting because i personally work better when i work off of somebody like like to me designing isn't a singular thing because what i found when i try to develop games earlier is that it's it's your baby right like you think you're doing the best things and you really need honest reviewers or, or play testers and you need somebody else to bounce off ideas off of james is just great for me for that because we're always like well what about this what about this and not necessarily everything gets implemented but it gets me thinking in different directions and these relationships were formed because of the pandemic of you know just communicating through emails and then doing zoom chats and yeah, yeah. i'm super i'm super grateful for that yeah it was it was great to network with you james there's no doubt i'm glad that uh <laughs> that we connected and uh you know lifelong buds now which i think is awesome you know i when i look at this game you know i think that's a good point because the, the specific example I can think of is when for the longest time we had it that if you revealed one hippo, that basically stopped it for everybody, right? So everybody in the pond that was still in the pond after a hippo was flipped were dead. And through the, the play testing we found and a lot of the blind play testing, quite frankly, is people were coming back saying, hey, you got a massive buzzkill here where you know you set up the board and then the first tile my flips is the hippo. And then you know that rounds over and we got our shuffle and, re and reset up. And that's what led us to this idea of, okay, you know, if somebody still can step on a, a hippo on their, their first slip and that person's out of the round but everyone else can keep going right so it's only when a second hippo is flipped that you start seeing you know that game that that round end for everybody else and uh you know then you do your reset the one thing i want to add is that the, the danger keeps getting stronger and stronger each successive round because you keep adding more hippos to the pond and part of the uh the unknowing in this game is when you shuffle the deck up there's a 52 tiles in this deck and in the fourth third and fourth round you got four hippos in there so on a five by five grid, there's a possibility that there's no hippos in that pond, right? And oh, that's the wow. part that kind of plays with your head a little bit is that, uh, you know, you, you're going along and you're like, oh, I don't know. I think I'm going to jump out because I don't want to flip a hippo. And lo and behold, you check the cards afterwards and there wasn't even any hippos in the pond. I really like that. I think that's pretty awesome. You've got a lot of games that you wind up, no matter what, you've got danger in there. Yeah. So like Quacks of Quedlinburg, you know that, hey, I've got these fizz bombs that are in my bag, and at some point I'm going to pull them. But this, that's a really, really interesting take. I, I really like that. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I like this idea, too, of, I mean, for me, and again, I got two kids that... Um, you know, they, when they play a game and they, and they start battling and if there's any kind of take that, it gets ugly real fast. For me, the balance, and this is one thing that James and I worked really hard on is 
how do we have a little bit of take that in there, but just a smidge. So not, not enough that there's gonna be a lot of sour feelings, but enough that it adds some interest and some variability to the game. So any other interesting stories that you guys have from the development of the game? Well, I think uh, one is uh, that uh, when we first throw this off, getting to know James, he's uh, he, he's an awesome guy. He really is. And, you know, he's got this quirky personality. And I wanted to have that in the game, in the artwork, as much as we possibly could. But I think we probably went a little bridge too far <laughs> out of the <laughs> gate where we had, like, the scenario when you read the scenario is okay. Pablo Escobar's, uh, you know, has is finally been caught, and now his, you know, they open up the gates of the zoo and let the, all the animals go, and you're trying to escape Colombia, and it's like this might be getting a little too dark. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we we had to pull the reins a little bit back, and uh, I'm glad we did, but uh, it definitely uh, we had a lot of laughs over that. In sourcing some of the components, uh, I had a pretty good chuckle with when we were sourcing that resource bowl. You know, we said to the the manufacturer, "Hey, can you send us? Uh, I want to see some samples, right? Can you send me some samples of you know the resource bowl? It's got to hold the the tokens." But I didn't send them the size. I just said, you know, send us like a resource bowl. I sent them a picture, kind of like you'd have in like, um, you know, Century Spice or something like that. So like a week and a half later, this package arrives at my door and it's a small little package. I'm like, do they only send like one bowl? This is very strange. So I open up the package and the bowl size is like, like a Kinder Egg size. You know, like you'd have like in a, in a Kinder Egg, like it can hold like two tokens. <laughs> I was like, what is this? But it's one of these cases where the pitcher, it matched the pitcher, but unfortunately it was like one-tenth the size it was supposed to be. So it's kind of a funny lesson that, you know, when you're dealing with, especially manufacturers on the other side of the planet, you got to be very prescriptive as to what you're looking for, not just photos, but measurements. And on the flip side, not just measurements, but make sure you include photos and things like that. So we learn with every game that we do. And uh, for that, for us, that was, that was a huge learning as well. For those of us in the States where Kinder Eggs are illegal, it's about the size of a plastic Easter egg. Are you saying Kinder Eggs are illegal in the States? This is a learning from Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they recently released uh, a thing called Kinder, I think it's Kinder Joy. Yeah, that's Kinder, yep, Kinder Joy. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, James, but the toy in the American ones is on the outside of the package. Yeah, it's like it's like weirdly packaged separately, I think. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. Like there was some <laughs> sort of beef with the government and Kinder, like they 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 just said that the the toys were like a choking hazard for kids and they made them illegal and there's like a huge fine for importing them. I wound up running a, a couple over the border. Uh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> My thought is I wonder if they would have put the 14 plus on the outside of the Kinder egg if it would have been okay, like we did with the game. Like sorry, you have to be 14 plus to buy this kinder egg you must be over 14 to enjoy this product <laughs> that's designed specifically for children i did not know that you know you learn something new every day i don't know where i'm going to put this factoid in my brain but um you know i'm, I'm glad that i'm now more knowledgeable than i was 10 minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're always educational here on cardboard time so tell us a little bit more about tin robot games and some of the other games that you've published yeah, absolutely. So Tin Robot Games, uh, we're, we're a relatively young company. I'd say we're about uh, three years old. It started off with our first Kickstarter, Tanks But No Thanks, which is a uh, tank skirmish game that plays two to four players. The follow-up to that was Queen of Scots, the card game. 
That was based on a game that uh, was in my family literally for 100 years. Uh, my grandmother, she played it when she was a kid. And uh, we oh, reskinned wow. it to uh, fit the theme of uh, the battle between uh, Mary, Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth I and all the characters around that story. Uh, Rack Up is another card game we have that uh, is part of that. Uh, and then we kind of worked towards um, Nutty Squirrels of the Oakwood Forest, which is our last campaign that did very, very well. And uh, we'll be fulfilling very shortly. I believe those games go on the water next week. Uh, so we'll be fulfilling those in about six weeks. But the core of our company is really, I like all sorts of games, but we really want to focus on casual gateway type games. So that that's our wheelhouse. So any game that we create has to be explained in less than five minutes. You have to be able to set it up in less than five minutes and the playtime has to be under an hour. If there's a game out there that either we create or in this case where we sign somebody like James and, and partner with them, if it fits that that kind of wheelhouse, then uh, then we're all ears and, and we're excited to see if we can bring it to market. We don't just focus on, on Kickstarters. We do have a couple games that are going straight to retail. One is called Dirty Dragsters, which will be coming out this uh, this Christmas season here in Canada, maybe in the States as well. And it's a, it's a very simple war type style card game where you're basically mixing your uh your each person picks uh, how much of their gas tank they want to put in the, in each heat you mix them together and you deal them out and based on how the the different uh, cards play is how these cards basically move down the track very simple but fun game for kids to play in the schoolyard or if you're playing with um maybe your grandparents or people who are non-gamers and how has the shipping situation impacted you guys oh <sighs> <laughs> well, we uh, that, we all know negatively. <laughs> yeah, that that's just a long sigh. You know, it, it's interesting. So Nutty Squirrels, everything was on track with that game. And I had a lot of people reach out to me saying, hey, you know, we're seeing a lot of things online about shipping rates and is it impacting your game? And at the time, everything we were hearing was no, we're, we're still on track. Everything's good. But it had, it, it did slow us down, not a lot, maybe by about a week, but the cost uh, was double. Mm-hmm double so and these are and not just like shipping to like the the backers this is like the containers coming from the manufacturer to the different distribution centers around the world that cost is is literally double right and so in our campaign we had accommodated roughly about a 50 percent increase in uh in the shipping costs and uh, it it is it is significantly higher than that so we end up eating that i had two choices i could have went back to our backers and said hey our shipping costs came in higher than we intended you know can we get more money but that's not really our style right so we plan a lot before we do our campaigns we want to make sure we're really buttoned down we have everything cost out properly all the shipping everything's planned before we even launch our campaign so for us it was something that we were able to manage and um you know, we make a little bit less money and that, that that's okay. For me, it's more important about the backers having a good game and uh, and then the extra inventory we have left over, we can put that out at retail. Yeah, shipping's been crazy. It, uh, it is probably that and VAT tax are the two things that have been the biggest disruptors in this industry as of late. The VAT tax, we were lucky. Uh, we saw that coming. So we accommodated that going into this campaign. But I know, you know, several publishers that their campaigns literally finished funding and then all this happened like right afterwards and in those cases you're kind of cooked right because your yeah yeah costs of getting into europe just went up by 20 percent and uh if you didn't if you didn't collect the funds from your from your backers either eating that or you're going back to the well and uh, it's never fun going back to the well it is never fun going Mm -mm. back to the well so if you can try to pad it enough to accommodate those things uh, then you should be okay 
it's been interesting seeing other publishers' reactions to it. You know, some people actually the most that I've seen is basically publishers eating it and saying, you know, we we acknowledge that it's there, but we are not going to come back to you and ask for more money. I've seen a couple of come back to the well. Like you're saying, when those shipping costs essentially double, I've heard estimates somewhere there were a couple of instances that was over 500% increase from what they were quoted. That's tough to eat. I mean, that's that's really, really tough to eat. Double is tough to eat. And then some publishers have actually gone back and said, hey, we're going to do a hybrid kind of thing where we'll give you a few promo cards if you send us some money that we'll put towards shipping. So mm, yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah. Really interesting to see the response. Yeah, and I, I think we're coming to the back end of that. And so we're, we're in kind of that in-between uh, hot mess uh, situation, right? But it, we're coming to the back end of it. And I think most campaigns going forward should be way cleaner uh, for most uh, publishers. And, you know, we, we, we've been fortunate. And, you know, I, I think that comes down to planning. And, you know, for me, that's the part I geek out over in the business just as much as the game design side is the business side. For me, I want to make sure everything is buttoned down. I'm shocked, quite frankly, when I talk to a publisher and I have talked to some even on our podcast where they're like, I say, well, you know, where, where are you going to manufacture this or, or who, who are you using to distribute this? And their answer is, well, you know, after we're finished our closer campaign, we're going to go figure that out over the next year. And it's like, what? Like, how do you not have those answers going into your campaign? Like, there's so many unknowns. You know, we're, we're fairly buttoned down, but there's still always an unknown that'll pop up during the campaign, right? So, you know, things can get very costly and you're kind of gambling with other people's money. Um, so you got to kind of, you got to take that seriously, right? And I think in respect to the backers, you got to do everything you possibly can to make sure you're going to deliver on what you promised. It's a crazy, crazy situation. And that's even more interesting that, that that's happening. That's oh, yeah. something that I didn't even know. That's yeah. crazy. It's typically for people coming in for the first time. Like uh, anybody who's published a game before usually uh, will get that button down. But yeah, it blows me away. It, it blows me away uh, to uh, mm. when I when I hear that response. But you know, all you can do is provide advice, and uh, usually my advice is button all that down before you launch. It will help you sleep better at night. Trust me. So besides hamsters versus hippos, what other games are on your guys' table lately? So in my house, the main games that get played for my family are Love Letter, Azul, and King Domino. Those are the games I can pretty much guarantee that everybody will go, okay, I'll play that. And then I play a lot of things solo. So I play Warp's Edge. There's a game by mm-hmm. Phil Singer Games called Champions of the Galaxy. It's like an RPG-styled wrestling game that I play. I have a, a whole shelf of solo stuff and Every once in a while, when I have time, I'll pull something out. And again, the same concept with the Tin Robot games. I want to play something that I can set up, play, and then put away. Like I don't, I don't have time for a game that takes me an hour to set up. Like I sometimes I'll use Board Game Arena for things, but mostly I want something with a quick setup that I can just play and enjoy, and then be done. For me, I try to try as many new games as I possibly can. And the one area that I've really missed on these meetups is I used to use that as an opportunity to try something new literally every week because, you know, at the meetup, everybody bring uh, a different game. But lately, what I've been doing is I've been actually going and buying some of these games that I would be playing at the meetups that other people would bring. So, for instance, Dominion is, is currently on our table. Parade, the card game. I don't know if anybody knows that game, but it's it's a fun game. Uh, like James, King Domino. I love it. That game, I've only been 
typically playing on uh, Board Game Arena in a digital format, but I finally got a physical copy to play. Some newer ones like Chai. So with the Kazimiers, they launched a Chai game. Finally got my copy, Deluxe Edition. Awesome, awesome game. I love it. We've been playing that a lot. Camel Up. And I just want to mention of one thing that James said there about the solo thing, because we didn't really highlight that too much on Hamsters versus Hippos, but there is a separate solo mode with this game. And one thing we want to make sure when we create solo modes of our games is to not just create like an Automa deck or just have it as an add-on, but have it as something that is thought out from the beginning. And in this case, we create a solo mode using the same components, some of the same mechanics, but it's more of a puzzle. So you're actually uh, using four hamsters at one time. And as you move them across the board, there's certain rules like no hamsters can ever be on two adjacent tiles and things like that. So you got to try and you can never move the same hamster more than once. So like a puzzle, you're trying to find a way to navigate this pawn, press your lock, but at the same time, you've got these constraints that, that force it into kind of this really thinky kind of puzzle mode, which I really love. For me, a Cristallo was probably... Uh, um, from Liberty Kiefer. She's got this awesome, awesome game, Cristallo. And that's a little bit of the inspiration behind the solo version of our game is saying, okay, how can we have it in a way that's puzzly, it's thinky, and then you're trying to hit objectives. So it's not just, okay, get the highest score you can, but really what kind of objective objectives can you hit? And what the ultimate objective is getting to Hamsterland, right? So you can beat the game and, and there's some cases where you, you can actually completely lose the game, but there's, there's kind of a how do I get out? I, can I get out of the out of the zoo, right? Okay, now can I make it to the border? Okay, now I'm going to try and make it to Hamsterland. So you got these different objectives with the higher level being obviously getting to Hamsterland. Awesome. Well, anything else that you guys have to discuss? No. <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> James, anything else, James? No, I'm good. Yeah, I, I just want to thank you, Arwen, for having us on the podcast. You know, I think that one thing I really love about this industry, and again, I'll just reiterate, I'm rather new into the industry, although thanks but no thanks is something that we made, you know, 25 years ago, but then kind of parked it. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are probably in a similar situation where maybe they tinkered with games or came up with their own game ideas when they're younger and they've, you know, put them in a closet somewhere to collect dust, right? And they've gone on with their lives and you know, assume that the board game industry was dead, but this whole indie uh, side of the of of the industry with Kickstarter and crowdfunding and so forth has created so much variety that I am sure that somebody's got a game in their closet somewhere that is collecting dust that they should pull it out, dust it off, and say, hey, you know, is this something I can launch or maybe I can you know tweak it a bit to to modernize it a bit? But there's a lot of gems out there, and I you know. I hope people will, will take a chance. You don't have to go, you know, big. You can go small. You can go on the Game Crafter and, uh, you know, make a prototype on the Game Crafter and sell it through the Game Crafter literally one copy at a time. You don't have to go that big, but if it's a passion of yours, you should definitely pursue it because, man, it is so, so rewarding to be able to see other people play something that you've created. And there's also a huge community, too, that's there to support that development as well. I never really knew about that when I started in the hobby and then kind of delving more into it. It's wild the amount of people who are just out there playtesting, giving feedback, trying to mentor uh, young designers. It, it's wild just the amount of community support that's out there for that. So that's a really good point. Yeah, to echo that, I think, too, is that you have people that love board games. You don't have to be a designer to get into the industry. There are so many different things you can do. As you said, you can play test. People are always looking for volunteers to play test their games. If that's something you love to do, try new games. 
reach out to publishers and say, hey, uh, you know, I, I love playing games and I'd love to play test your game. Do you want to hook me up with a tabletop simulator version? Or if you got like a rough sample, I'd, I'd love to try it. Go to uh, like some of these prototype nights like Protospiel and so forth and, and try other people's games. Maybe you're an artist. Maybe you, you, you're you just really good at doing art. Well, you know, there's often people looking for artists for their games. Maybe you're good at social media like uh, like James the Wizard that's on this uh, on this this podcast with us. And, you know, that could be your contribution. You know, there are so many different things. Literally, anything that you could do there's got to be an application uh in the board game industry you just got to find it but there's so many people looking for people to help that uh, uh there's there's something there for anybody if you just look for it well perfect and i want to thank both of you guys for being on the show the the most important thing absolutely is where and when to find hamsters versus hippos Oh, perfect. So Hamster versus Hippos hits Kickstarter on October 20th. Uh, if people want to sign up, we would love to have you follow the campaign. Even if you don't sign up, just, just to follow the campaign. If you go to tinrobotgames.com, so tinrobotgames.com, you can sign up to our newsletter and uh, we'll send you a notification when we go live. Uh, if you prefer just to go to the Kickstarter notification link, you can do that as well just by going to hamstersvshippos.com. So it's hamsters and then vshippos.com. Uh, if you want to follow us on any of our social media channels, it's at Tin Robot Games. And if you want to check out our podcast, it's the Board Game Binge Podcast, which you can find anywhere you download your favorite podcast. Well, again, thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, I think that is going to do it for us today. Please make sure to check out our website at CardboardTime.com. Instagram and Twitter is at Cardboard underscore Time. If you have any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, please email cardboardtime at gmail.com. And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in another two weeks for another episode of Cardboard Time. 